Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Here's what we're looking at in this section. We're looking at Jesus's discipleship with his followers. Uh, the context of what we read there is Jesus departs and passes through Galilee. He's keeping it uh, kind of a secret. We, we, we shifted into a point in the Gospels where Jesus' public ministry has kind of, for the most part, wrapped up. And he is uh, kind of now operating in a stealth mode, seclusion, sort of like quiet um, method. Because Jesus' goal at the end of the day is not just to get a big crowd of people around him. He's here to do the Father's will, which he knows is going to lead to a cross. It's going to lead to his, his own death. He, he actually talks about that in this passage. Um, but more than that, Jesus is going to focus his attention on his disciples. He's investing whatever's left of his life into his disciples. He's reproducing himself. He's reproducing his nature, his character into his followers. This is the way of Jesus. Not just how do we pack a room out with a bunch of people, but how do we actually lead people to grow in the very character of Jesus? That's discipleship. And that's what he's doing here in this passage. He doesn't want anybody to know it. He's kind of keeping it a secret. He's hanging out with his homies. That's kind of his focus. That's actually what it means in the Greek. It says hanging out with his homies in the Greek. All right, some more sarcasm. Anyway, next verse, it says that he taught his disciples. That's what he's busy with here. Jesus is focusing his attention on downloading the truths of the kingdom to his followers. He's teaching them. He's teaching them the culture of the kingdom. That's really important here, okay? Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. He's the king, and with the king comes the kingdom. Jesus is not just bringing the kingdom, though. He's also seeking to advance the kingdom in the world. And how does he do that? Like I said, he does it through his followers. And so if Jesus is going to spread the kingdom of God through his followers, he's going to have to teach them the ways of the kingdom. His goal is to reproduce disciples who represent the culture of this kingdom. And, you know, some of the best teaching on this is found in the Sermon on the Mount, which is like Jesus' uh, kingdom manifesto. It's three chapters long, and it's all about what the culture of heaven is like in contrast to the kingdoms of this world and how we tend to operate. And what you'll find when you read the Sermon on the Mount is that the, the culture of heaven is counterculture to the ways of man and the ways of this world in every way. Things like loving your enemies. I mean, th these kind of concepts and ways of life that are just counterintuitive and they're counter our nature. But Jesus is going about reproducing followers of his by his spirit, through his word. He's producing people that actually take on this culture, that live this way in their culture. They represent God. In fact, that's what we're called in scripture. We're called ambassadors for the kingdom, right? Representatives, citizens of heaven. We're not just citizens here of the U.S. We have two zip codes, locally and then eternally. And we represent that kingdom here on earth. But as anybody in here would know, especially those of you who have traveled to a foreign culture before, learning a foreign culture requires you to unlearn, unlearn a lot of your natural culture. Anybody ever experienced that before? I, I can think of a couple examples. One of the greatest uh, blessings of being a youth pastor growing up is all the different opportunities I had to travel internationally for missions trips and seeing Junior here who I met in Brazil on a missions trip. Hey, buddy. Um, and, and just, you know, whether, whether it was Brazil or Morocco, there's a lot of great uh, places that uh, the Lord uh, led me to be able to go share the gospel. And, and one of the most important you know, things that we do when we're training, especially youth for a missions trip, is we, we help them be aware of their cultural tendencies and how those cultural tendencies are going to extremely stand out in the context they're going to. Like, what's normal for you is weird to them. And vice versa. What may, might be normal in that culture is going to surprise you. Like, I remember going to Morocco, and it, it's normal there for male friends to walk around holding hands. That's just a common cultural custom. It's, it's a sign of brotherhood. But, you know, Drew and I just saw each other here today at church in the parking lot, and we didn't walk in holding hands. That's not, if you're comfortable next week, I'm happy with it, okay? But 
it's not a normal cultural practice for us. It's a little foreign. And, and so going to those contexts, you have to unlearn a little bit of what is just culturally accustomed to you. I, one of the, obviously the most probably relevant would be like going to England. If you've been to England before, that's a real joy. Um, got to go to England on a missions trip a few years ago. Um, and actually, Reese is here as well. What the heck? And I went to England with Reese. I've gone to another country with every single person in this room, actually. Uh, remember England, Reese? That was a good time. Um, the most obvious thing you have to unlearn when you go to England is what side of the road to drive on. And I don't remember who planned this trip. I'm acting like I didn't. But whoever planned it had in their mind, let's just send the three American leaders to go pick up these rental cars and just they'll drive them back 30 miles on this speeding road that zigzags all throughout the English countryside. And I was fearing for my life. I'm driving on the wrong side of the car. It's the wrong side, the mailman side. What's up with that? And, and on top of that, I'm like weaving in and out of traffic. It's such a foreign thing that I, I had to unlearn the natural ways that I look before I turn all those different things. And then, it, you know, it's, it, another step of this is when you start to communicate with, with English people, it turns out they speak a different English. Did you know this? I say that like we invented the language, you know. Um, but there's just certain vernacular and words that are English words that mean different things there. So I remember, for example, we were, it was uh, one of the outreaches we did was, that's why I loved youth ministry, it was a skateboarding outreach. I'm like, yes, Lord, send me, here am I. And I had become quite a mess, and um, I met some of the, the other English missionaries there. We'd be gotten really close, and I shared with them, I'm like, I was about to go up and speak. I was like, I think I need to change. My pants are dirty. Now, we all know what that means, right? I've been skating. In that culture, these are not your pants. Your pants are your underpants. <laughs> They're like, really? Your pants? Are you okay? Was it the English food? What happened? Like, so... You gotta learn these things. Okay, you get the point, right? Andrew's a, an American, that's the point, right? The point here is clearly to learn the ways of one culture requires unlearning the ways of another. Is this making sense? And we need to understand this, that with the things of God, we can't assume that we're gonna take on the things of God naturally. We've gotta have humble, teachable hearts that say, Lord, I'm not going to assume that my tendency is to go your way and know your way and show your way to the world. I'm going to assume that I've learned some ways of my own that maybe I've justified or I've, I've led myself to say this is normal, thinking like this is normal, and it might be normal to this culture, but is it normal to the culture of your kingdom? And then th this is what we do. We look into the mirror of God's word, which is the test for that. And this happens all the time for me, where I read things in God's Word, and I just go, huh, that's not normally how I think. That's not normally how I live. And, and that's how we grow. The best way to learn the way of Jesus is to unlearn the ways of the world and unlearn those natural tendencies. In fact, we talked about this last week. This is actually how Jesus would teach. He would teach with this idea in mind. Most of the Sermon on the Mount begins with this phrase, you have heard it said, a.k.a. you have learned that you should think this way, you should act this way, you should live this way, you should retaliate this way, you should approach relationships this way. He says, but I say to you, right? If you're going to learn my way, you've got to unlearn the ways of the world. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this passage. As we called in the title, Jesus is redefining certain key concepts and ways of life that the disciples have come to learn differently, and he's teaching the disciples the ways of the kingdom as he is redefining these different ideas. If you want to get the full teaching on this, this is part two. You can listen on our podcast to last week for part one, and we looked at Jesus redefining. Does anybody remember? I heard it. Maybe I didn't hear it. In my head, I heard it. Success. Thank you, Brian. All right. Successful answer right there, okay? Last week we saw Jesus redefining success, right? We have our own cultural way to think about success, but what is God's way to think about success? Well, here, as we kind of continue along the passage here, Jesus is continuing to redefine and changing how we think about certain key concepts. Let's start with the first one here, where Jesus redefines, go ahead and write this down, the first thing Jesus redefines 
It's really the second thing, okay? But the first point, which is the second thing that Jesus redefines here, is we'll call it prominence. We all, we all have our own learned ideas of who is the most prominent, who is the greatest among us, who's the highest up on the societal totem pole. We have a, a metric for that. Who's the highest? Who's the next highest? Who's the lowest? Who's in the middle? We have our own systems in our culture that determines who's the greatest among us and who's the least prominent among us. The disciples had their own system as well that Jesus is going to completely flip upside down, right? Uh, it tells us this, that when Jesus came to Capernaum and when he was in the house with his disciples, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? So classic disciples, always distracted, they're traveling along the road, and it's like taking a road trip with children. They're arguing the whole time, and they're debating and disputing. Here's the, here's the contention. Here's what they're talking about. Who among them is the greatest? That's what they're disputing. And Jesus asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves? But they were ashamed as he asked them this question because they were guilty. And so what they did was they kept silent. They're like, mm, I don't, I'm not sure. They just kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed who would be the greatest. I mean, this is no wonder they're silent. They're embarrassed. This is embarrassing. This is the thing that they're focused on. Jesus just told them that he's going to go and give his life as a servant in sacrifice for the sins of the world. And here's the disciples over here. And they're caught up with, at the end of this whole, like, Jesus thing, who's going to be on the, on the top, right? They're thinking to themselves, like, this is pretty cool. You know, we are the disciples. There's going to be a lot of disciples, but they will never be the disciples, right? Not only that, but we are the disciples of the Messiah, I mean, this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is great as the mystery of God, godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we beheld his glory. I mean, this is Jesus, who is our best friend. We're on his team. I mean, it only had 12 slots. And we got picked. And here we are. We're on team Messiah, Jesus. We're the disciples. And they're wondering, as we leverage this opportunity for our own benefit... Who at the end is going to get the most out of this in terms of societal prominence? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be on top? That's the debate they're having. Jesus then takes them into the house and he sits down. This is how you know it's serious. He's not just like doing what he's doing and then turning to talk to them. He goes, okay, we need to have a teaching moment here. And he sits down, he gets on their level and he, and he begins to teach them, and this is the best sermon anybody's ever preached. It's one sentence long. I wish I had the, the profundity to do this on a Sunday morning. I just get up here and I go, good morning. Sentence. Let's pray. All right? I can't do that. All right? I'm just, instead, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through Jesus' sentences. They're much better, okay? But Jesus, he teaches them a one-sentence sermon. And here's what he says. If, he, he redefines prominence. He says, if anyone desires to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. Think about this for a second. This is counterintuitive. This is counterculture. Not just the culture of first century Israel. This is, if anything, it's more so counterculture to the 21st century America. What an interesting concept. I want to point out a couple of things about this, this redefinition. First and foremost, I want to point out that Jesus doesn't rebuke their desire for greatness. He doesn't do that. He doesn't reject that desire. Later on, he'll affirm it again and talk about how to desire it. So here, this is important. It's not a sin to desire greatness. In fact, it's woven into the heart of every young child that hasn't become marred by selfish ambition and culture and all sorts of issues in culture. If you, if you meet a young child and you ask them, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do with your, your life? It's usually something tied to greatness. You know, some movie that they just saw where there's a hero who, who saves the day. Or, you know, the idea is I want to make my life matter, right? I want to make my life count. You know, and I think that's true not just for a child. I'm sure all of us. I think it would be rare, or if not impossible, to find someone that just says, you know, I really, my heart's desire is, is to live a mediocre life. I just want bare minimum subpar would be fine, okay? I'm just looking to be insignificant. No, nobody says that. In fact, even if you might have gotten to some place of despair and hopelessness and living, deep down within you, since 
you were a young child, there is woven within your heart a desire to really live, right? A desire to experience all that you were created to be. That desire for greatness is not a bad thing. Jesus' issue for the disciples isn't their desire, it's their definition. The issue wasn't a desire for greatness, it was how they understood greatness. For the disciples, greatness meant, listen, it meant being first at the expense of others. That was the idea. In sort of a competitive mindset. As we would think of athletics, kind of translating that into the spiritual life, the idea of greatness in their mind was to be first and beat out everyone else. To be first at the expense of others. The idea was to be higher up on the totem pole than others. It's a picture of self-exaltation, right? Me above you, you below me. Fame, notoriety, in our culture, followers, a blue check mark, image, accomplishments, a certain number in the bank account, a certain kind of letters before or after your name. Whatever it is for you, it's some sort of self-exalting goal where you're at the top and you're praised for it. That was their idea of greatness. That was their definition. Now, notice how opposite greatness is in the kingdom. Do you see it completely upside down? It's the exact opposite way. In the kingdom, Jesus says, if anyone desires to be first, I'm not rebuking that desire, but understand that first in the kingdom is the one who seeks to be last. And it's the one who seeks to be the servant of all. Listen closely. According to Jesus, he redefines prominence, and he says, In the kingdom of God, greatness is not found in how high you can climb socially, but instead how low you can go as a servant. Let that sink in for a second. In the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, greatness is not found in how high you can climb socially, but instead how low you can go as a servant. In other words, you could say it this way. The lower you go as a servant... Flip that around, the higher you are in the kingdom. Isn't that cool? It's Psalm 136. I don't have the reference here, but it says that God is on high, but he looks upon the lowly. That's who God's impressed with. That's who God values and looks upon and honors. Not the person that seeks to be served, but the person who seeks to serve. That's the person who's high and great and is, listen, and is prominent in the kingdom despite who's prominent in our culture. Now, let's just think about kind of the idea of what this looks like with the disciples and their character as opposed to what Jesus is trying to produce. One commentator said it this way, here in this passage, the disciples, in light of their definition of greatness and prominence, the disciples are seeking to be sovereigns while Jesus is seeking to reproduce servants. I love that thought. They're seeking to be sovereigns. How can we leverage this to increase our sovereignty? Well, Jesus is seeking to reproduce people like him who are servants. If you think of the contrast here, someone who's not a servant or has the sovereign mindset versus someone who is a servant, here's a couple thoughts that scripture gives us that contrasts this kind of person who's great in the kingdom. A sovereign is self-interested, self-centered, self-focused. You're always on your mind. You being served, your needs, your priorities, your wants, your preferences, your desires, your opinion, your everything. It's you, right? Self-centered. Versus a servant who is other-centered. Someone who, who seeks to live for the benefit of others. It's not so much, how can I benefit off this? And this is, by the way, this is something that um, can really only be tested by God himself. Isn't that true? You ever, you ever done an other-centered thing for a self-centered reason? Just me? All right. In marriage, you ever done that? Like, I'm going to be a good dad today. I'm going to clean up today. I'm going to invest in my own benefit, okay? I mean, think about it. Think about how culture works this way, kind of doing good in order to get a return. So much of business is about that. Do good so that you can, it's all about gaining in the end. Versus someone that just says, I am, and this is what the gospel does, I am set free from addiction to self. I am set free from being a slave to me, and I am free to live and serve others. Imagine a church that looked like that. We existed not for our own self-interest, but for the interests of others. When we came into church on Sunday morning, we weren't being so self-conscious about me. No one's approaching me. Has anybody, has anybody noticed that I haven't been here for a couple weeks? Is anybody thinking about me? But you're going, what about them? How are they doing? 
how can I approach them? There's so many studies on this too in terms of just like how uh, depression and how a lot of these states we can find ourselves in can be override or overrode, I guess is the word, you get the idea, with being other-centered. There's healing in that for you. Like if your mindset has always been the church, I'm, you know, I, I can never go to church because those people never think about me. It's like, well, what if, you, what if you approach church as going, how can I think about others? How can I go out of my way to love on someone? How can I pursue others? That, this is the mindset of a servant. We see this? Mindset of a servant. And, Unless you think I'm just sharing my opinion, here's what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Isn't that interesting? To esteem is to place value upon. And you you go into an environment, you approach life, you approach your work, you approach everything and say, I'm going to put my mind and my attention on others and what they need. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of of others. This is not just counterculture to the American way. This is counter nature to the human way. This, this, is not, this is not how I'm wired, by the way, when I wake up and get out of bed every morning. How, okay, good morning, Lord. Who can I serve? What are other people's? I, I wake up and I'm thinking about three things, me, myself, and my needs, right? It's just me. So what a beautiful picture of what Jesus calls us to as servants. Another contrast we could say with a servant versus sovereign mindset is a sovereign is convenience-driven. Where a servant has this sense of humble willingness to do what's needed, to meet the needs out of compassion. And, and they're kind of, they kind of overlap here. But think of it this way. A sovereign is convenience-driven. I'm looking for whatever. I'll serve as long as it's easy and not too uncomfortable for me, Right? I'll serve this much up to this point for this long. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, unhealthy, an unhealthy serve posture. And there's, there's times where the best thing to do is, is to stop trying to give because you need to receive. And we try to teach that here at Solus. Like, we're not like trying to get more people in the seats so that we can get more things done. <laughs> you know, and, and in fact, ministry, all ministry is, is giving out of what you've received. And so there is times where you, you need to stop in order to serve God more effectively. You need to stop and you need to receive so that you can give out of that. And that's an okay thing to be in. That's a good place to be in. But there does come a point where it's like, what are you going to do with what you've received, right? And are you going to think, I'm just going to find a way as long as it's not too, as long as, you know, I got to have my me time, you know, my me time. Sunday morning is, I know church is there, but I got some me time going on on that day. Now, again, do I, do I need to do a whole now thing about me time? Okay, have your me time. Okay, spend time with Jesus. But think about the idea here of what Jesus calls us to, not being con- convenience-driven, but coming before Jesus with a humble and willing heart that says, Lord, I will serve you as you lead me. As you lead me. I'm here to serve you as you lead me. Not as man wants me to serve, and not as, as I tend not to serve, whatever it may be. I'm here to follow you, and I'm going to trust you that you're never going to lead me to serve beyond my capacity. You're going to be faithful to tell me to stop when I need to stop, when I need to receive, when I need to say no. It's not just the systems we have. It's sometimes the heart posture that says, I I need to stop. So servant mindset versus sovereign mindset, uh, convenience-driven versus humble willingness. You know, and if we don't want another one-point sermon today, we got to move faster. So here's the next thing. The next thing and the last thing about this posture of a servant for the kingdom, a sovereign is spotlight-driven where a servant is true light-driven. In the kingdom, the greatest is not the one who has the spotlight, and that can be a motive for a lot of us for why we want to serve. I'll only do the thing that gets me attention. I'll only do the thing that people are watching. I'll only do the thing that will build my reputation and build me credit amongst people as a good person or as whatever we want to fill in the blank with. The idea there is spotlight-driven. And the Bible has a lot to say about the danger of your deeds being done to be seen before men, right? And how you lose your reward when you live that way. The the way we ought to serve as servants, and this is the nature of a servant, right? A servant is there to do what's needed, whether they're noticed or not. And as Christians, we have so much more than that. We have a greater motive than the spotlight. We have a goal to point to the true light. That's why we serve the true light. Now, it's sermony, you know, and catchy, spotlight, true light. 
but it's actually biblically, okay? It's the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where John actually speaks about the, who Jesus called the greatest man who ever lived. He could have said that, right? The disciples are de- debating who would be the greatest. He could have been like, Stop. no, John the Baptist already won. Just shut up, okay? He could have done that. Jesus would never say shut up, first of all. And then also, he, t- he took it, obviously, to the heart road. But John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest man born of woman. And, and this is something so great about John. It says, in him, Jesus, we're talking, talking about here, was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus is the true light. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This is what we know changes lives in our workplaces, in our world. We just need the light to shine in the darkness. Don't overthink it. As long as we can be bearers of light, let your light so shine. Let the light break into the darkness and watch what the light does when you turn it on. Watch what the light does when you turn it on. There was a man, in light of this, sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. This man, this is his servant mindset. This is why he was so great. He came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Now, there's an important uh, disclaimer here. He was not that light. He wasn't the light. But he was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light. There's that word, the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. This is what made John so great. He wasn't wasting his time trying to pursue the limelight, trying to pursue the spotlight. He was caught up with passion for the true light. He was caught up with the desire to point all people to the light of Jesus. I'm telling you, that's the heart of a servant. When that's you, you just say, I'm just here to, bring, to bear witness. I'm not the light. People ask you, like, aren't you a Christian? I thought you were a Christian. Just be like, I ain't the light, okay? I'm not the true light. I'm just here to point to Jesus. And I am called to let my light so shine before men. But the goal is that they would see my good works and, and do what? Glorify God in heaven. Not praise me, but glorify God. This is a servant. Now, Jesus, Jesus went to great lengths to teach the disciples about this. This is one of those sermons that Jesus preached more than once, right? We know that, that as Christians, just because you've heard it once doesn't mean you don't need to hear it again, right? Oh, I've already heard the sermon about light before, Andrew. <laughs> I've heard that one. Give me a new one, okay? Like, no. Paul says to the Philippians, it's not tedious for me to say the same things to you twice. It's helpful. We need reminders. We need refreshers. And we see this with Jesus and the disciples. Like, this lesson about servant greatness is constantly reiterated and retaught to them over and over again. I mean, they didn't learn the ways of the, of, of the world overnight. And we don't learn the ways of God overnight. It takes time. It takes a process. It's glory to glory. And so there's, a, there's another example of Jesus teaching his disciples about servant greatness. And I'm stealing, neck, uh, you know, chapter 10, Sermon Thunder here, but that's okay. Um, in, in verse 42, Jesus is talking about leadership and how if, if you're, basically his concept is this, if you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. That's his principle. Isn't that great? If you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. And he's teaching them this and, he, and he's contrasting the way of the kingdom versus the way of the world. He goes, you know that in the culture you're in, those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, the politicians, they don't leverage their positions as servants. They leverage it for selfish gain. That's how they lord it over them. They're sovereigns, and that's how they lead. They lead as lords, lordship leaders. And it says their great, great ones exercise authority over them. The way that they are using and wielding their power, he's saying, is for selfish gain. It's not the way of the kingdom. And he says, but guys, it's not going to be that way with you. He just says it flat out, like, hey, this isn't an option for followers of Jesus. We don't run our businesses this way. We don't run our households this way. We don't run our parenting, our lives, our marriages. This is not how it's going to be with us. This is not the way of the kingdom. You see, with you as a follower of Jesus, he says, whoever among you desires to be great, not a bad thing, that's great. He just needs to be the servant of all. He says again, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Now, the next verse, which is the most famous, is where Jesus says this. For the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus will never lead you to a place that he's not willing to go. And when it comes to servant leadership, is there a better better model of servant leadership than the person and presence of Jesus? Who had all power and all authority. And this Jesus... 
who ought to be served by every ounce of life that you and I have, because he's king and he's Lord. He came to this world in the form of a servant. He served. Aren't, aren't you thankful that Jesus served to the point of death of the cross for you and me? He served. He went to the cross for your sin, for my sin, as a servant, something that only a servant would do. This is, this is what the Son of Man came to do. And listen, can I tell you, like, when you, when you really get that, when you don't just see Jesus as my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you know, my Lord, there he is. When you start to see Jesus as the Lord who became a servant, when you didn't deserve him to be that for you, yet he was that and he served you, he, he served to meet your greatest need, your, your, listen, reconnecting you in relationship with God and granting you eternal and abundant life. When you see what he did, can I say that's the only true lasting motivator for being a servant? You know, gospel gratitude. You just go, I'm just so thankful that Jesus served me. How, how can I not live to serve him? And this is what Paul says. He says, let this mind be in you, Christian, that was also in Jesus, who being in the form of God, this is Jesus, pre-incarnation, he was in the form of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three and yet one. There's a rap song that says, working as a unit to get things done. I love that. Bars, right? Okay. Um, Jesus is... In the form of God, he doesn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's not something that he had to grasp for. It's something Jesus possessed. Jesus is not just God's son. He's the son, of, or not just the son of God. He's God the son. And Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is what Paul says. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. You see how it works in the kingdom? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You with me? And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here's Jesus. Humbles himself for you and me to be saved. And God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. We know it goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every, t every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to his glory. Every knee will bow before the authority of Jesus. The question is, does your, does your knee bow willingly here as a worshiper? Or does your knee one day have to bow under the weight of the truth? Jesus will be exalted. So here's Paul's encouragement for the church, and I will, by the grace of God here, be moving on to the next point. Paul says this, for you, brethren, have been called to freedom in Christ. And that freedom isn't just, you know, I'm now free to get to, you know, do whatever I want. That's not true freedom. That's slavery to your desires. That's not liberty. He says, you've been called to freedom. Here's the best freedom, freedom from yourself. He says, don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Who is the freest Christian among us? It's the Christian who has learned self-forgetfulness and other-centeredness. It's the Christian who's learned that it's not about the spotlight, it's about the true light. Who's the greatest among us? Who's the most liberated Christian among us? It's the one that's not driven by convenience, but is just here with humble willingness in response to Jesus who served them. This is how Jesus redefines prominence. Jesus also, if, you, if you're interested in the second point, it's kind of interesting too, you should, you should check this out. Jesus also redefines importance. So prominence has to do with greatness. Who's the greatest among us? Who's at the top of the totem pole? Importance has to do with who matters. Who, whose life in here has value? That's the question at, at stake here. And Jesus kind of, he's seeing that they have a prominent social structure of who's the greatest. And as he looks deeper into it, he sees it's actually tied to a system of, like a caste system of who matters more than others. Who's important and who isn't important. So Jesus, what he does is he takes a child. Jesus loves sermon illustrations. So he's like, hey, come here, child, you're a sermon illustration. Get on my lap. So Jesus takes the child, he sets him in the midst of them. What a beautiful visual. And when he had taken him in his arms, you see just the comfort and the security of King Jesus. He said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus is like, if you receive this kid, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive God. Isn't that true? If you receive Jesus, you receive God. But notice this, he says, if you receive this child, you receive me. 
Um, what is Jesus doing here? As he is redefining importance, let me say it this way. Jesus is confronting the disciples' social value system that they have. They have a social value system. A system that determines who matters most and who matters least. We all have these systems, by the way, subconsciously built into how we approach life and people. We have systems that determine who's worthy of our time, who's worthy of our attention, who's worthy of our kindness, who's worthy of our generosity, and who's not. Social value systems. Who matters most and who doesn't? Who's worthy of, of me and who isn't? Now, in that culture, children were at the bottom of that caste system. They were, they were at the lowest end of this. Um, we, we live in a culture that either like despises children. We're, we're all schizophrenic in America. We despise kids altogether or we worship them. It's, it's like children-centered living. There's a danger in that. You'll crush your kids if you worship them. If they're the center of your purpose in life, they will fail you, won't they? Anybody ever been a kid before? You know what I'm saying? You ever done that yourself, right? There's a danger here. We see with Jesus in this culture, it was an interesting culture. In, in that time, children, they didn't contribute anything to society except, you know, looking cute, which is just some of them, you know? Just kidding. Um, that's not even funny. You're being mean to kids. But nonetheless, okay? They, they weren't high up on the society. They, they, they were, you know the expression, like, better seen than heard? That's the idea. And for the most part, I don't even really want to see you. There's a story in the next chapter we're going to read where children are trying to come to Jesus, and what are the disciples doing? They're like, no, children's ministry is closed, kids. Go home, okay? They're not letting the kids come to Jesus. They're like, get out of here. That's how they treated them. And Jesus goes, what are you doing? What are you, why are you treating those children like that? You, you've learned these ways to, to value certain people over others. You come into a room and there's some people that deserve your attention. There's some people that don't. Where'd you get that from? That, that's not the ways of the kingdom. So Jesus takes a child and he puts him on his lap. And he says, whoever, whoever receives this child, the least among you receives me. He'll go on to say that later in Matthew. That's actually going to be one of the evidences at the end of time when God is separating the children of God and those who are not to life or death, the sheep and the goats. When God is making that delineation between all of humanity, one of two categories, he actually uses how people have treated those who are least among us as one of the evidences that they're of the sheep. That you're saved. Here's the evidence. You, you treat the least of those among you as if they were Jesus. Hebrews says that we'll actually do that unknowingly to angels. Did you know that? That we'll even entertain angels and not even know it. That's crazy to think about. It, it's a really interesting concept here that Jesus is confronting them with. Um, Tony Evans said this. I wish he hadn't because it hurts so bad. Just kidding. I'm really glad he did. He says, you can tell the most about a person based on how they treat people they don't think they need. You can tell the most about someone how they, based on how they treat people that can't really do anything for them like a child. This is the true test of, of who you think is important, who you, who you don't. This is... Such an important concept. Jesus teaches it here. The younger half-brother of Jesus, James, like every kid brother, loves to copy their big brother. When he wrote his letter to the church, he taught the church this. He says, Church, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in a Tesla, in fine apparel, Louis, Gucci, hey yo, and there, listen, and there he is, and, he, or, and whatever it is. Today, maybe it's not clothing. Maybe it's some sort of prestige or notoriety. Like Whatever our social metric is that says this person's really valuable because of X, Y, Z. Rather than they're as valuable as any other person who's made in the image of God that Jesus died for. If there should, some come, should come someone who, who matches that valuable metric, but there also should come in someone who doesn't, who's poor and in filthy clothes. That's not how you dress when you come to church, right? That's all they had. 
He says, and, and what you do is you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in the good place, VIP section. I've been to churches that have VIP sections. And in the front row, there's a verse in the Bible that says the Pharisees love the best seat in the house. He's like, if you do this, what, what, you're holding the faith. This is, doesn't represent who God is, giving value to some over others. You say to the man in fine clothes, you sit here in the good place, and to the poor man, you stand there. You don't even get to, you don't even get to sit. Sit at my footstool. He said, have you not shown partiality among, your, among yourselves? And here's what he says. Here's the problem. You, you've taken on the role of God to become judge. The problem is you have evil thoughts. You're not perfect. You have, you have unrighteous judgment. That's the danger here. When you play judge... And you forget that you're going to be judged? <laughs> that you're, you and I, we're not the judge. Paul says, I don't even judge myself, man. I let God do that. This is the danger here. When, we, when, you take your, you, when you and I take our flawed social judgment systems and we determine who's worthy of our attention and our love and our care and our generosity and who isn't. And I'll tell you what, Jesus just comes along and he redefines importance altogether, doesn't he? It's like whatever you think makes someone important, flip that upside down. Whatever your culture says, this person matters more than this person. And, and here, it's almost like by Jesus taking this child and placing him on his lap, if there's a principle here, it's almost this. It's like Jesus often treats the least among us as if they are the greatest among us and the most important among us. That's what he does. He's like, let me take the person who's least among you, who's least greatest, and let's make them the most important among you. And maybe we could just ask ourselves this question, like what systems have we created to where I'm giving value to some people over others? And um, here's another question, like who is least important in your life naturally? You, may, you might not even know they're there. You might have to have God reveal to you who that person is or who they are. And how can you live in such a way that you make them matter? I'm telling you what, that's evangelism. When you bring someone's worth, it's not, you're, you're not the authority on it, but God, you say, hey, do you, know, do you know that God created you? I don't know what people have made you feel, but do you know that God, even when you were in your mother's womb, do you know that God designed you? He had you in mind. He wired you the way you are. Do you know that he loves you? Did you know that even though you've sinned against God, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? He loves you. You matter to God. Like when we start bringing, that's a gospel right there. That we bring the, the truth of people's value before God. You know, we, we studied earlier Jesus he delivers a demoniac in a cave who is the least among that culture, right? This guy was, everyone's like, go around that cave. Don't go through, the, don't, go, don't go that way, go around the cave. And how does Jesus deliver this man? He spends thousands of dollars, I love this, of someone else's property. That's the best part, right? He sends this, he, this guy, what was his life worth? A whole herd of swine going off a cliff, which people would look on at that and go, that's wasted money. Jesus goes, no, this life matters. So who can we make matter. Jesus redefines importance. Jesus also, look at this. You get, we get three points today. Yoo! Jesus redefines clearance as well. The disciples are, are hearing Jesus talk about who matters and who doesn't, who's great in the kingdom. They're, they're, they're having these conversations about who matters and who's valuable and who's significant, who's prominent. And, and John, John has a thought. He goes, huh, that reminds me. He says, Jesus, speaking of what you're saying, this is really, this is, I don't mean to interrupt your sermon. This is good stuff. I really like it. But listen, the other day we saw someone who doesn't, get this, Jesus, they don't even go to our church. Jesus, they don't ascribe to every single fine point of doctrine that we do. No, the big ones, definitely, <laughs> yeah. But the little ones, nope, different eschatology, okay? Whatever it is. Jesus, there is someone who, they don't follow us, but we saw them casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. I wonder if they were waiting for Jesus to be like, good job, boys, you did it. You were exclusively a jerk for the kingdom. Way to go. Now, let's read into this a little bit. In this same chapter, does anybody remember an instance where the disciples, they're encountering a demon-possessed child, and what happened? 
they weren't able to cast the demon out. Remember that? Hmm, right? It's amazing how skepticism can sometimes just be the outgrowth of jealousy. Why do they have that many followers? They must be heretics. They must be heretics, Lord. They're not of my church, not of me. So the disciples, you could, you could just kind of almost see the jealousy in their hearts. These individuals were able to do what the disciples failed to do, which is successfully bring the kingdom of God in power to a demonic situation. And so, the, so they go, we got to forbid this guy. Now, their reasoning for why they would forbid, forbid him is they didn't have the proper clearance. Jesus, we checked his, we asked him for some ID. He didn't have the Jesus ID. You're allowed to serve Jesus card. He didn't have the proper clearance. And so Jesus redefines clearance altogether. Here's, here's the question of clearance. Who's allowed to serve God and be used by him? Who's allowed? Who gets to serve God and be used by him? And we, we tend to have these boxes of who is and who isn't, right? These are the people that get to serve God and be used by him. And, and the disciples have this too. And so they're forbidding people from serving Jesus. But Jesus says, don't forbid him. What? For, for no one works a miracle in my name can soon speak evil after me. And for he who is not against me is on our side. Jesus goes, there's two metrics. Here's the clearance of someone who could serve God and be used by him. They're pro-Jesus. That's good. Like pro the biblical Jesus, by the way. And they're pro the cause of the kingdom. They're not against, they're on Jesus' side. These are people that are for Jesus and what he can do to change people's lives. And if you're pro the biblical Jesus, and you're for the cause of his kingdom, and you haven't hijacked that for your own cause, have at it. You have clearance from God. And this is a confrontation to how we tend to exclude certain people because of our different fine detail differences. In scripture, this is called sectarianism, right? These are the people that are real, like they can serve God. They have maybe one person that can serve God over here, okay? But we tend to play this game for, with, with who God can use and who he doesn't. And um, this is where Jesus puts an end to that. He says, don't forbid them. Don't, don't cause disunity. If someone is for me and for the kingdom, celebrate that. Paul goes on to say in Philippians 1, he's like, some people, when they preach Christ, they do it for a selfish reason. He's like, that's, that's going to happen. It's going to happen with you too. He goes, but you know what? I just rejoice because the name of Jesus is getting out there. That's what Paul says. That's a win. That's, it's not a perfect win. Hey, it's a win. The name of Jesus is being proclaimed. Don't forbid them. Um, and I think, can I just say one more thing about this, um, which is, I think for many of us, there's, there's probably a group of us that need to hear, like, you, you need to think about who you're excluding, who else you're excluding from serving God for these reasons. There's other of you in this room that you, you don't even begin to think that. The only person that you exclude is yourself. And you're like, oh, I include everybody but me. <laughs> and I want to say the same is true for you. What kind of clearance do you need to serve God and be used by him? That same willing, uh, um, humble heart, servant heart that says, God, I'm here for you and your glory, and I've, I've encountered you, and I want to make you known. I want to advance your cause. Uh, here's what Paul says. He says, I'm, I'm confident concerning you, my brethren, that you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and you're able to admonish one another. Paul's writing the, to the church at Romans who's got their own set of problems, all sorts of issues. And Paul's like, in light of all the issues we just went through, Here's the one thing I want to encourage you with. He goes, I'm confident that you have in Christ everything you need to serve him. Isn't that awesome? Well, I didn't go to this school. I've only been saved this long. I don't know. When I go to a small group, everybody else knows the Bible but me. There's no verse in the Bible that says, like, the more Bible you memorize, the more effective you are in your service to Jesus. Now, we want the word of God to drive our ministry, but, but the idea here is, is, is Paul's like, listen, you, you find your confidence in serving God not in some external ability, but in Jesus, in him, what he's done in you. Lastly, we'll close with this, invite the, the team to come up as we close. Jesus closes with redefining significance. Jesus redefines significance. So he redefines prominence, who's, you know, how we think about greatness. He redefines importance, who matters among us. He redefines clearance, who gets to serve God and be used by him. And then Jesus ends by redefining significance. And the question of significance is, okay, I, make, I might get to serve God, but whose ministry means the most? 
Because for me right now, serving God means changing diapers in the middle of the night. That's serving God, by the way. For me, serving God means being a light to my coworkers. For me, I, I don't have the gift to, to, maybe I'm not as naturally bold, and I'm not, I don't have the gift to teach, but for me, serving God, it's, it's, it seems like the way that I serve God is, is small compared to how others serve God. And so, so what, is, what does it actually mean to be, I, I don't want to just serve God, I want to serve God significantly. So how can my life be significant? And Jesus will even redefine that. Here's what he says. He says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name. This is, in that culture, this is the gift of the poor. It's not gold and silver. This is a cup of water. It's the gift of the poor. It's the littlest thing you can do for someone. Give them a cup of water. This is a little thing. We would say this is insignificant, is what we would say in our culture. It's not that big of, it's not really serving God. He says, he says, surely I say to you, because, rather, sorry, let me go back. He gives you a cup of water. Notice this. This is key. In my name, the motive I'm doing this in Jesus' name. I'm doing it for Jesus. Even the smallest thing done in Jesus' name, notice this, will have a great reward. Isn't that beautiful? If you do a small thing in Jesus' name, you will by no means lose your reward. This is the promise of Scripture that we serve not unto man, but we serve unto God. And there's a great reward system that God operates with. He re- even if you're not rewarded here for changing those diapers in the middle of the night, you're laying up treasure in heaven. And the one whose opinion matters most sees you. And, and the one whose rewards last the longest sees you. He sees your service. And it's not insignificant. What, what makes it significant is not what you're doing it, but, 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 but why you're doing it, who you're doing it for. Mother Teresa talked about doing little things with great love. And how, listen, this is how it is in the kingdom. We tend to, in the kingdom, we go, you know, the person whose ministry matters most is the person with the greatest ministry. Like Andrew. Today, Andrew's, Andrew's the minister. His mi- it's like, you don't know my motive. I want to assure you that I love you and I'm serving Jesus this morning, okay? But we, we tend to look at the outside and judge according to outward appearance. And we go, that's significant and that's not. Where Jesus says, listen, at the end of the day, the way I measure significance is not just in method, it's in motive. It's not just in what you're doing, but why you're doing it. In the kingdom, you can do small things and they become significant things when they're done for the kingdom. That one person that no one sees you loving on and pursuing and being a friend to, you have no idea how much that matters to eternity and matters to God. Don't lose heart because of some flawed view of significance. Continue to serve the Lord. Continue to, continue to be about what he's called you to. And do all things for the ultimate reward of being told by God himself, well done, good and faithful servant. This is why we do what we do. Amen?